As we continue in our study of Luke, we have come to Luke 21. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 24. Everyone seems to want to know what's coming next. It's just a, just a natural inclination of our human hearts. There are entire industries of prognostication. I remember back in the old days when we used to watch the weather reports on TV or read about it in the newspaper and almost always make fun of the weatherman for not getting it right. And it's gone from that to apps that can tell you that in 10 minutes from now, it's going to rain. Or maybe it's sports where there are multi-million dollar complexes, TV, radio, magazines, all trying to help you understand what comes next. Who's the next big thing? Who's going to win and who's going to lose? In fact, one of the books that I have read most recently, fascinating book, uh, the title of which was uh, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And it's all about prognostication. It's all about What's going to happen at the end of the global order? And I couldn't help it. I found myself engrossed by this. What's going to happen next in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years? Just seems to be how we're in it together. Well, here the disciples are asking Jesus the same question. And he's going to respond in four sections, roughly. One, things not to worry about. Two, what you should be worried about right now. Three, what's coming on the horizon. And four, where it's ultimately headed. Now that last piece, that's for David Henderson. He's going to preach on that next week and do an amazing job, I know. So I'm just going to walk you through those other three. Before I do that and before I read God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, written from of old. I ask that you would help us now as we read it. Would you still our spirits and hearts, help us and our minds to hear what you would have to say to us, that these words were not just written for men and women 2,000 years ago, but it is very life for us right now. It is bread for our souls. So help us that we might feast upon your word and that it might do its work, that we might ultimately love you more and love one another more, all for your glory and honor's sake. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen. Luke 21, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said... As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end 
will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for a woman who, is, who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and be left captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Praise be to God for his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. It starts with some around Jesus, probably disciples, admiring the temple. This temple is Herod the Great's reconstruction project. It started in like 1819 BC, and it actually wouldn't be done until 64, 65 AD. So here we are right in the middle of it. This is roughly 30, 33, somewhere in there. So we're right in the middle of this beautiful reconstruction period. This temple was a sight to behold. Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, called it immensely opulent. Said you had never seen a temple if you hadn't seen the temple in Jerusalem. By size, it was bigger than some of the seven wonders of the world. This was an amazing temple ground. It was hard not to be in awe of it when you saw it. You could see it from a distance. And even the description, noble stones, it's like the very best was used for the temple. So here are these disciples and they're looking around in awe and wonder at this, what should be the house of the Lord And Jesus cuts right through. 
He says, no, 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 you don't understand. There's a day coming when one stone won't be left upon another. When all of this is going to be raised. It seems that you and I have this tendency to let our worldly eyes deceive us. To allow us to have a sense of the permanence of a thing. When the only thing that makes something permanent is God and his providence and care. It's much like what Dr. Thomas has been warning us about, even as you heard our elder Jason Luther pray about this very evening. Sometimes we can look at, say, this campus, such a large, wonderful campus that's been here for 228 years. That's incredible to have a place of faithfulness for over two centuries and our hearts and our minds can, be go, can begin to go down that track that says, this place is permanent. Nothing could harm it. It's, it's been here for so long. But that's not true. It's only God's love which establishes and cares and keeps this place as it is. That love poured out to us by his word and his spirit. It's it's Derek's warning from this morning about the need for faithful elders because otherwise, just like the temple, even this place can be gone like that. If you've seen anything about what has happened in post-Christian Europe, there are beautiful churches, beautiful churches, churches that are centuries upon centuries upon centuries old. And they're now nightclubs. And they're apartments. I think they call them flats. And it's heartbreaking. And what Jesus is doing for the disciples is saying, look through. Look through the exterior. Look through the worldly. And let me tell you that unless there is right worship here, it will all fall down. And of course, they're they're not worshiping Christ. They're not worshiping rightly. So this all will be raised. So this, of course, brings up the question for the disciples. When is this going to happen? Because this is incredible. It's an incredible thing to have Jesus tell you. It is apocalyptic. It is a sense of the end of the world. Should there be an end to the temple? That's the sense for a Jew. So tell me, Lord... When is this going to happen? And the first thing he does is he says, well, let me tell you what you shouldn't worry about. There are a whole bunch of things that of course you're going to hear about and that happen in the world and that just like your worldly vision wants to be anchored here in the Temple Mount, as you hear and see it, you're immediately going to be in the, "Uh uh-oh, it's coming. Don't worry about false teachers coming in my name saying the end is near. They are false messiahs. Don't worry about the guy out on the corner with a sandwich board and, and, and his sign. That's, that's a distraction. Don't worry about theological innovation. 
Somebody who has something new. Some new uh, uh, conspiracy. Some new something to kind of uh, try and get your heart. Some new worship technique. No, no, no. Christ is who he says he is. And all those who would come after him must comport with Scripture as Christ has given you his word. So don't worry about these people who come after me saying, the end is near, follow me instead. Of course there are going to be people like that. Of course there are always going to be people nipping at the heels of God's people, wanting to lead them astray in this fallen world. It's a sign of the fall, not the sign of the end. And second thing, not to worry about social upheaval. There will be wars. There will be wars and tumults. Nation will rise against nation. Of course. Of course that's going to happen. We live in a fallen world. The only thing that can bring peace to this world is Christ. And when Christ comes back and he remakes the world. One of my favorite pictures here is in Isaiah. Isaiah 2 and verse 4. Isaiah's got a little bit of a a, a glimpse as to what it's going to look like someday. When Mount Zion is as it's supposed to be and ruling the world. In other words, the last day. When the kingdom shall come down. He gets this beautiful little picture at the front of Isaiah 2. And in verse 4, he says that weapons of war shall be turned into pruning shears. Weapons into gardening tools. Because we're going back to the garden. We're going back to where we came from. That's the beautiful picture in Revelation. As we see that beautiful garden, that tree that is then now finally grown up. And we get to go back there in peace. He says, nations will no longer even learn war. We will finally be done with enmity between ourselves and with the Lord. But that only comes... After the remaking of all things. So don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Don't think it's the end when you hear of some far off war. That doesn't mean don't pray. Peace is better than war. And we need to pray consistently for peace in our home nation and pray for those who are caught up in conflict. But where our minds want to go, this must surely be a sign of the end. Do you know that, that happened both at the, um, in the middle of World War I and World War II? Is that there were preachers preaching, this must surely be a sign of the end. Because it's so bad. Millions of men dying. Jesus has to return soon. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's, that's not a sign. Of course there's going to be war. And then lastly, he says that there's going to be earthquakes. Those, those signs 
natural evil, not just the evil of, of war, but of storms and earthquakes. Once again, we know this isn't a sign of the end because all of nature is groaning, is groaning to be reborn. The day in which Jesus shall come and shall reform the world and all of a sudden we don't have to worry about any of those evils ever again. These are three things that it's so easy for our hearts and minds when we hear it to run after and think, oh no, the end is near. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that is not the end. Brother or sister, that's just life in a fallen world. That's just the death and evil that Adam brought into the world when he sinned. It's not the end. So, he gives you those three things and says, those are not the end. And then he wants to point his disciples to what they should be worried about. So you are worried about the destruction of the temple. Let me prepare you for what's on the horizon, close horizon. And that is persecution. Like teacher, like disciple. He knows that by the end of the week, he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be killed. And he's been trying to prepare his disciples for the fact that they're going to have to pick up their cross and follow him. That what happens to the teacher happens to the student because students are not above their teachers. But these can be hard-headed disciples, just like you and me. And sometimes we need to hear the same thing over and over and over again. And so Jesus says, what you need to be preparing for is, is, not, is not the second coming right now. It's not even the end of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. What you need to be preparing for is persecution because it's coming. It's coming. And look who's going to give them over. Parents, brothers, relatives, friends. This is, this is no list of, you know, out group over there that hates me. These should be my closest allies. These should be the people who are protecting me. And yet, because I would stake a claim with Jesus, you can guarantee that the day is coming that they're going to turn you over. And they're going to turn you over to the prisons and the synagogues. And just to be clear, prisons and synagogues then are not like they are now. Prisons, even though they were to keep you, then they had no obligation to keep you alive. They just had to hold you for whatever trial. If you died while they were holding you, that's on you. Try not to die. You needed to know people who would come and visit you and bring you food and help take care of you. And if you left a family, to take care of your family. And, and the, the trials, they could, they could kill you easily. They could, they could decide to crucify you as they did Jesus. 
And the synagogues had similar power. As we see with Paul, Paul gets lashed multiple times. Paul himself would persecute the church multiple times, putting people to death, even people like Stephen. This is is no safe place. You follow me and it is dangerous, Jesus says. But he makes a couple of promises. And these promises are well worth noting. Promise one. This is an order to witness. And I'm going to give you what to say. Persecution always comes with the ability to witness. Now notice, it's witness, not conversion. So often we think, Jesus, if you're going to test me, and Lord, I need you next to me, and I hope that I pass this test, and I stand up for my faith, and if I do it well, people will hear and be converted. That's not what he's promising. There will be a number of the people who hear Jesus' voice, even that day, who will die for their belief in Jesus. And they will not immediately see conversions. What Jesus says is that I'm going to give you a chance to be persecuted so that you can witness about me. So that you can testify about who I am and my character. And you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. You don't have to build up some argument in your mind or in your heart. By the way, this is, this is a promise that has been true for his people throughout centuries. This is not just limited to the disciples and the apostles who are with him. It has been true throughout the ages. But as people are persecuted for Jesus, Jesus is with them. And Jesus gives them the things to say and to do. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be ready to defend the hope that we have, like First Peter would tell us. Of course, we need to defend the hope that we have and be prepared to defend it. And yet, also, he's giving you rest. Set your mind. You, you hear what he's telling you. Set your mind on the fact that I, through my spirit, will give you what you need. You don't have to worry. You don't have to think through, how am I going to answer every argumentation? Maybe you're something like me, and you worry sometimes. That by standing up for your faith, if it was called to do so in some public way, a classroom, with an employer, neighbor, friend... That someone would ask you a question and you wouldn't know how to answer. They would say something somehow and you wouldn't have just a quick verse off the top of your head. And you want to think and you want to come up with all the schemes. Now I'm a classic overthinker. Just ask Derek. He will tell you. And the beauty of this is that Jesus says, look, you know, know my word But don't worry. I'm going to give you what you need in order that you might be the exact witness I need you to be in that moment. Thank you, Lord, 
Thank you, Lord, that it's not on me. By the way, history shows that Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. Most of the disciples would lose their lives standing up for what they believe in Jesus. But that witness, that incredible witness of those first few generations of Christians, Tertullian, kind of early church father, second century, he would write in 197, he would say, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. And this is someone who saw no light level of persecution. Christians were routinely arrested, killed, killed in terrible ways, put in the Colosseum to be murdered by animals and gladiators. There was even a time when Christians were strung up on poles where oil was put all over them. They were lit aflame. They were living street lamps. That's what they were. While the emperor rode in his chariot. That's tough. And yet, Jesus is saying, the witness that I need, I will give to you, and it becomes the seed for the church. Second promise. And this one even more beautiful than the first. Verse 18. Not a hair of your head will perish. Uh, wait, what? Like if you, if you had a soundtrack, there would be like that record skip soundtrack right now. Because, wait, you just said at the end of verse 16... They will put you to death. Jesus, how can that be true? How can it be that they will put some of us to death and yet not a hair on our head will perish? By the way, that promise that not a hair on your head will perish, it's, it's an emphatic negative. There's an extra negative there that doesn't need to be there. Jesus is saying, I guarantee No harm will come to you. Not even one hair on your head. Well, how can that be? Well, it's because of how you define harm. Right? He'd already told us in Luke 12. Don't worry about the ones that can kill the body. Right? The ones that can kill the body... That's all they got. They shoot their shot and it's over. But there's something more than that. There's a life beyond this that is eternal. And what he is saying is you will have eternal life. And there's not a single hair on your head that you will have to worry about perishing eternally. I promise you. That's what he says. It's a beautiful promise for his people. Now, you and I don't live in a world where we have to face penal persecution for being Christians, at least not right now, and not in this setting. Maybe there are some of you who are thinking about being missionaries and 
That might not be true wherever you go. And praying for you if that is true. But don't think just because there's no place for penal persecution that there's also no place for persecution here. Even in the South, for Jesus' name. You stand up for Jesus. You act according to the ways that he calls you to act. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. You love your enemies even when they persecute you. You pray for them. You go the extra mile and you do the extra thing at work or at school. Not because you have to, but because that's what you believe Christ calls you to. And I will guarantee you, people will begin to persecute you for that. It doesn't make them very comfortable. You say that I'm doing this and I'm acting in this way at work, at school, the neighborhood, because Christ through his word calls me to reflect his character in this way. People roll their eyes. And yet you are no less called to it. And you will probably find yourself being invited to fewer things, and that's fine. That's fine. Our level of persecution is so small, so small, compared to the global church, compared to the historic church, and yet do not think that there is nothing here. You are called as much as I am called to stand up and witness for the character and word of Christ. And if you are doing that, and that has never, ever cause someone to be upset with you, maybe there's a question of whether or not you're doing it right. Thirdly, off in the more distant and quickly, there is the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus now gets to the thing that caused this line of questioning in the first place when they asked when it was that these temples should fall and Jesus warns that there is coming a day when no one should be found in Jerusalem when it would be better to run this is by the way exactly why he was weeping when he entered into Jerusalem He knows this day is coming. How does he know this day is coming? Well, he knows this day is coming because he knows his Bible. I'm going to read for you Deuteronomy chapter 28. Not the whole chapter, don't worry. Chapter 28 gives you blessings and curses for covenant faithfulness. And I just want to read verses... 52 and 53 of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy that tells you what will happen if you are faithless to the covenant. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies 
shall distress you. That is a terrible warning. That the city is going to be so under siege, they won't have any other recourse than to eat their own children. Now you actually begin to see a little bit of that in 2 Kings 6 in Samaria. When they have the Syrian siege of Samaria, that happens. And it stands in Israel's history as this gross rebuke of how far they've come from worshiping the true God, that God would allow them to get to that place. And what Jesus is saying, that same thing is going to happen here. Because there's covenant faithlessness here. Because they don't accept me. Because as he will say later, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And they won't, they won't receive that. And because they don't receive it, they've got to receive the curses. Now, interestingly, we actually have historical record of the fall of Jerusalem. There's a uh, former uh, Jewish, then gone Roman historian by the name of Josephus, who actually writes and documents about the fall of Jerusalem. Guess what he says is the most miserable point of the fall of Jerusalem? When a mother ate her own child. It's terrible. It is gut-riching to read. If you have any interest, just look up Josephus. Mary of Bethesuba, B-A-T-H-E-Z-U-B-A. And it documents that exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Woe to those who are pregnant. Woe to those who are nursing. It says a laugh in here in our Bible, but it's probably a woe. Woe to them because of how terrible this is. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Number one, it means that it just continues to say that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the prophet. He's able to know by the word and the ministry of the spirit exactly what's going to happen. Secondly, that it is the rejection of Jesus that leads to the rejection of Jerusalem. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, why would that befall Jerusalem? It helps us. To know that the God that we worship in Jesus Christ really is God. Secondly, that Jesus' warnings should be heeded. Not just the warnings that he gives to disciples. Did you know that the early church actually survived? It survived the fall of Jerusalem. And it survived the fall of Jerusalem because when these things began to happen, when the army began to surround Jerusalem, they had Christ's word. One of the early church historians said it is because of this that literally thousands of early Christians were saved. They heeded his warning and they fled. 
No less for us. When Christ gives us a warning, if it's a warning about faithfulness, it's a warning about trust in him, a warning that he is the only way, it is equally as sure. Now, there's a, there's a little hint at the end as it talks about the times of the Gentiles because this A.D. 70, which is when the fall happens, I don't know if I mentioned that or not, but when it happens, it's, a, it's like a type and shadow of what's going to happen when the end of the world comes, when Jesus returns. But that's for David Henderson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for this, your word. Ask that you would be with us. Help us to be those who would not be focused on the world's rumors of war, natural disaster, but instead focused on you and your kingdom. Ready that we should stand up for you, knowing that persecution will come and it is time of witness. And then, Lord, as we think about what it means someday to welcome you back, would you give us strength and courage? Help us, Lord, that we may follow after you and heed your warnings. Do it in a way that brings you and you alone all the glory and honor. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.